Do I have to touch it, or is it starting? So about um, a couple of years ago, I was drawn to the poem that is in this sutra, um, the Discourse on Knowing the Better Way to Live Alone. And I started um, using that in my morning meditations and would read it at the end of the meditation to start the day. And so when the program council decided that we would look at different sutras or discourses in the chanting book for our theme, this one was the one I decided I wanted to explore. What was it about this that was resonating with me? Why did I want to, um, why did I like this poem so much? So I'm going to ask Steve, where are you? There you are. Okay, I'm going to ask Steve to read the sutra out of the chanting book for us. Discourse on knowing the better way to live alone. I heard these words of the Buddha one time when the Lord was staying at the monastery in the Jetta Grove in the town of Savatthi. He called all the monks to him and instructed them, Bhikkhus, and the Bhikkhus replied, We are here. The Blessed One taught, I will teach you what is meant by knowing the better way to live alone. I will begin with an outline of the teaching and then I will give a detailed explanation. Bhikkhus, Please listen carefully. Blessed one, we are listening. The Buddha taught, do not pursue the past. Do not lose yourself in the future. The past no longer is. The future has yet to come. Looking deeply at life as it is in the very here and now, the practitioner dwells in stability and freedom. We must be diligent today. To wait to tomorrow is too late. Death comes unexpectedly. How can we bargain with it? The sage calls a person who dwells in mindfulness night and day the one who knows the better way to live alone. Bhikkhus, what do we mean by pursuing the past? When someone considers the way her body was in the past, the way her feelings were in the past, the way her perceptions were in the past, the way her mental formations were in the past, the way her consciousness was in the past, 
when she considers these things and her mind is burdened by and attached to these things which belong to the past, then that person is pursuing the past. Because what is meant by not pursuing the past? When someone considers the way her body was in the past, the way her feelings were in the past, the way her perceptions were in the past, the way her mental formations were in the past, the way her consciousness was in the past, when she considers these things, but her mind is neither enslaved by nor attached to the, these things which belong to the past, then that person is not pursuing the past. Because what is meant by losing yourself in the future? When someone considers the way his body will be in the future, the way his feelings will be in the future, the way his perceptions will be in the future, the way his mental formations will be in the future, the way his consciousness will be in the future. When he considers these things and his mind is burdened by and daydreaming about these things which belong to the future, then that person is losing himself in the future. Because what is meant by not losing yourself in the future? When someone considers the way his body will be in the future, the way his feelings will be in the future, the way his perceptions will be in the future, the way his mental formations will be in the future, the way his consciousness will be in the future. When he considers these things, but his mind is not burdened by or daydreaming about these things which belong to the future, then he is not losing himself in the future. Because what is meant by being swept away by the present. When someone does not study or learn anything about the awakened one, or the teachings of love and understanding, or the community that lives in harmony and awareness, when that person knows nothing about the noble teachers and their teachings, does not practice these teachings, and thinks, this body is myself, I am this body, these feelings are myself, I am these feelings, this perception is myself. I am this perception. This mental formation is myself. I am this mental formation. This consciousness is myself. I am this consciousness. Then that person is being swept away by the present. Because what is meant by not being swept away by the present? When someone studies and learns about the awakened one, the teachings of love and understanding, and the community that lives in harmony and awareness, when that person knows about noble teachers and their teachings, practices these teachings, and does not think, this body is myself, I am this body, these feelings are myself, I am these feelings, this perception is myself, I am this perception, this mental formation is myself, I am this mental formation, this consciousness is myself, I am this consciousness, then that person is not being swept away by the present. Because I have presented the outline and the detailed explanation of knowing the better way to live alone. Thus the Buddha taught and the bhikkhus were delighted to put his teachings into practice. So in November, 
I knew I was going to be talking on this, and I started taking a piece of this, and I would um, sit with it, and I'd have a notepad next to me and uh, when I was sitting, and I would kind of invite one this section of it um, to just rest in my consciousness, and if something came up, I would make a note about it. And um, did this for November and December, off and on. And so now what I'm going to share is kind of my process and what I came up with um, and what I might have, might have to share with you about it. Um, but the first thing I want to clarify is this whole business of living alone. Um, I always got stuck on that part because um, I was figuring who in the world's going to live alone in this culture. Um, and besides, you can go out in the wilderness and you're hardly alone if you've got all this noise going on in your head. And you can be in a crowd and feel very alone. So um, I got to thinking, uh, what, is the, what are they meaning by living alone in this context in today's culture? But you take it in the context of when this was written a couple thousand years ago, there were two monks. And one of them was Ikavai Haraya, and one of them was Tara. And these monks lived in those days in communities in which um, they were supported by the village to practice. And, but these two monks liked to live by themselves out in the woods. And um, one of them was beloved and was um, everyone felt very close to and felt like that person was really, even though they lived apart and they were solitary, they were contributing to the whole in some way. Their presence was. The other one they felt uh, was, and here's the quote, uh, Tara, um, but he lived the solitary life only according to the outer form, and his fellow practitioners noticed there was something unbalanced about it. So the Buddha invited Tara to visit him, and when he gave this teaching, he only gave the poem to start with, and uh, no commentary. So the monks and had asked, well, we want some commentary on this. And two of his disciples gave commentaries. And the Buddha liked those commentaries and added that to this. Uh, but I didn't find that the commentaries help a whole lot when this person is, is, being, is thinking this is this and that is that. And then they're not thinking this and not thinking that. I mean, I, that didn't seem to mean a whole lot to me. So I thought, what is this really all about, and what do I need to do to put this to action in my life? But uh, the living alone part, we're not talking about living alonely or solitary. It's referring to living alone without all of the internal noise of our ghosts from the past, hopes and fears of the future, um, our, the internal dialogues and all the internal conflicts that go on inside and all the noise in your head. Um, Thich Nhat Hanh calls it radio nonstop thinking. And so when they're talking about living alone, not talking about the context of living solitary out in the woods, we're talking about living alone where there, you are alone um, without the thoughts in disturbing and intruding so that you can truly experience the present moment. That's what they're saying. That's what you're striving for in living alone. So uh, that helped a little bit. Um, 
for me, I've got a very, or have had in my life, a very undisciplined counsel uh, inside of all kinds of opinions about everything and voices and feelings and you know, going on inside. And um, over the years with the, the practice, um, they have gotten less noisy and uh, has made a big difference as I pay attention to them. So I do have a more quiet and peaceful internal landscape now. Uh, so living alone means with less internal dialogue and more connected to the depth of the present moment. So I felt like I kind of understood the part about uh, not dwelling in the past and getting lost in the past, not dwelling in the future and getting all caught up in anxieties about the future. But then I was thinking, what about the present? How do I, I thought we're supposed to be living in the present. How do I get lost in the present moment? So I thought, that's where I'm going to start. I'm going to start exploring. How do I get lost in the present moment? Uh, I mean, that's, I'm trying to be in the present moment. So I started observing myself. And the first thing I noticed was um, mutter, mutter, mutter. Uh, that person was responsible for doing that. And they're not doing it. And now I'm going to have to pay the cost of they're not doing it, mutter, mutter. You know, so there I am in the present moment experiencing this, but going off on it. Um, irritation. Someone is not closing the cabinet doors when they use the cabinets in the kitchen, or someone is walking across the carpet in their boots with their cleats on. Irritation. And so I'm, I'm observing how these thoughts and feelings come up in the present moment. And I'm just following right along with them and just letting myself go with it and tracking right along with them. And then uh, I had a piece of chocolate. And then another piece of chocolate. And then another piece of chocolate. Oh, it's really good. Another piece of chocolate. And another piece of chocolate. And then I'm on my case for having not eaten a good lunch because I ate a lot of chocolate. <laughs> So I'm noticing that I'm easily, moment to moment, I can get lost in the present experience. I was experiencing the chocolate, but it was, um, I was kind of lost in that experience. So um, I, was, I was learning about how to be um, present, but there was something more, I mean, another thing I would do is, I would blurt, like a thought would come up, an opinion would come up, and I would blurt it out. Sometimes I would interrupt people you know, to get my opinion out. So I was observing all kinds of things. Another thing about daydreaming, I would daydream. You know, They talk about daydreaming in the present moment. I would daydream about skiing. But I'd be stuck in the daydream rather than going and getting my skis out and getting on the phone and calling somebody to go skiing with. I would be stuck in the daydream um, thinking about it. And so these are some of the, just starting to observe how I meandered through my day. And although I was kind of present with, and I knew what I was, I mean, I could observe myself, I was not ending the day feeling satisfied and, you know, enriched. So how do I practice with this? And I decided to start by catching myself. Um, and I would catch myself and I would notice when I was experiencing some irritation or a craving. 
and then I would consciously step out of direct contact with that thought, with that thought stream. I would ground myself in my uh, in the rhythm of my breathing, which I talked about in the meditation that we did. I observed myself, and I would do that with kindness and curiosity, and then I'd ask a question. Is this important right now? Is this, uh, do I want to pursue this? Is this something that I need to be doing? Or maybe I'm daydreaming and I really have a project I'm working on I want to get back to. And I just smile and I say, well, that was a nice daydream, but let's get back to this. So I would interrupt the process and I nicknamed it catch and release. So I would catch myself and then I would release from the, from the thought stream. And you think of, of release as letting go, and everybody says, oh, let it go. Rowan sings this song all the time about letting it all go. And it sounds like this major process, like forgiveness is like this major process. But letting go is nothing more than stepping out of direct contact with the stream of thought or with the emotion. You just step back and you observe it. And um, it takes some practice to do it, and you might step out, and pretty soon you're swept back in again, and you step out and swept back in, but um, you get better at it in, in time. So catch and release is basically stepping out of direct contact with that thought, and um, benevolently or smile at it. And um, first, But it's important to ground in breathing, take a breath, and then um, ask yourself, is this, where I, is this how I want to spend this moment? And maybe it's yes, maybe it's no, maybe it's later, maybe I make a note and come back to it later, but that's in the present moment I can do this. And that way I have a little bit more control. But I also notice that there's something more needed with that, that it wasn't enough to just say I'm going to do catch and release. Um, it's called discipline. And so I called it mindful discipline, but I'm sorry, but mindful discipline is no more palatable than discipline. But that was my experience anyway. Uh, it's still discipline, but mindful discipline sounds a little nicer, but um, friendlier maybe. So it's stepping back and smiling, and, but still being firm about this process okay, I'm going to ask this question. And um, being firm about it, I kind of call it um, being benevolent alpha. You want to be in charge of the committee inside. You want to be kind of in charge, but you don't want to be this tyrant either because that doesn't do well with the, the um, internal dialogues. So... Um, catch and release is catching myself, grounding myself, observing and deciding, and then I re-engage with intention, re-engaging the thought or the process or the, maybe something else I'm shifting my attention to. Okay, that's not what I want to be doing right now. I want to be doing this, and I purposely, intentionally re-engage or engage something that I am intending to engage. So that's the process. So next I wanted to explore the experience of getting carried away by the past. There's the line in the sutra I want to focus on uh, that says, when his mind is burdened by or attached to these things that belong to the past, yada, yada, yada. 
when he is not enslaved by these things that belong to the past, yada, yada, yada. Um, so we're not saying don't ever deal with the past, but the idea of getting caught up in them and having them interfere, disturb, or disrupt the ability to be present. Because um, there's a bigger picture I'm going to get to later. So there's a reason you want more space. But the truth is that every aspect of your past is present in the present moment. It lives in your consciousness. Every experience you've had uh, is like a big library that you carry around with you. Um, <clears throat> there's our causes and conditions that can trigger experiences and they manifest in the present moment. You experience the past in the present moment. Uh, for example, you might notice when someone you love is walking towards you, you feel joy. Uh, you see a cat that looks like the one you used to have that you loved and died, and you feel very sad. Um, when a friend of mine died, I had this cascade of all kinds of losses I've had in my life. And, oh, and then there was this, and there was that, and then there was my dog when I was a kid. You know, and all these things manifested in the present moment. They all just kind of anchored to that, and the whole string came up. Uh, when my father died, I had a video loop that ran of all the memories of my dad and the experiences with him. It was a shock when I get the phone call and then whoosh, memory after memory after memory for several days. It was intense at first and then it was not quite as intense afterwards. But sometimes there's nothing you can do but just sit and smile and let yourself go through that and it will pass. It's not permanent. Um, so that's dealing with the past, sometimes it will emerge. And sometimes, I mean, oh, you'll know the names of some of these, by the way, uh, these ghosts that come up from the past. There is a regret, rehash, review, remorse, reflect, relieve, and react. All of those are, you know, they all have re to them. So that's a good way you can, if you think, uh, what am I thinking about? Oh, I'm, re I'm remembering or reflecting or... Um, regretting, remorsing, then you know it's past. It's easy to recognize that. Um, but it's not that they're bad. It's just, is that the quality that you want in this particular moment? And so when you notice that happening, or when I notice that would happen, I would again um, apply catch and release. I would catch myself, and I would step back out of contact, so I was not in direct contact with that feeling or that um, thought, and observe it and smile and say, is this where I want to be right now, and is, this, and is this important? And sometimes there's one that keeps coming back and coming back and coming back, and you think, okay, I'm going to sit with this in the next sitting, and that's called deep looking. Then you sit and you invite, what is this about? What is this about? And then you just sit and you see what comes up, and you get an insight about something that uh, is important to you. Um, so, um, <clears throat> and you might even be aware that you're doing it and maybe indulge yourself in doing it. Sometimes I've indulged myself in uh, self-pity or anger, defiance, and sadness. I remember when I separated and um, 
went through my the loss of my first husband or the um, divorce of my first husband, I had a, a record that I would play over and over and over, and I would just dwell on that sadness of, of longing and sadness of the loss of that hope and dream that I had had at that time. And I would just kind of wallow in it until, I mean, that was before I really got much into this practice. And uh, I don't think I would let myself do that so much now, but um, I did definitely do that a lot. Um, So I talked about the discipline. I will say, too, that when I had all these ghosts going on and I I have done a lot of sitting and have made a lot more space than I used to, but when all these ghosts were clamoring for attention in my internal dialogues, I had a very hard time connecting with other people. And I could only, I, I avoided going inside and spending much time inside. And I think that that um, lack of depth had a lot to do with um, the end of that first marriage and some other friendships that I've experienced because I was not skilled at being able to go in and clear that out or you know, be able to, to connect with someone else with, with some depth. So um, <clears throat> I do want to talk for a minute about another type of dealing with the past, and that is sometimes um, <clears throat> it's a resident ghost from the past that can happen for some people. When we experience an emotional shock, our mind can get overwhelmed and you can't process or digest it. That experience can get stored in the consciousness with all the feelings still attached to it. And usually, uh, as we process something, we experience something, and as we process it, we interpret it, we learn something from it, and the emotional charge to that experience is dissipated, and then it's stored as a narrative. And so our library is full of these narratives. But if you get... um, if you have a shock, sometimes it's more than your body can die, your mind can digest. So it's a little like you eat something that your stomach can't digest and it lays there heavy in your stomach. This can happen in your mind as well, that you can have a, a shock experience that cannot be easily digested. And for children, sometimes this can happen with chronic confusion or shame, such as when a child who does not have the life experience to process something that is happening stores that undigested experience. And then later, something in the present moment can trigger a very strong emotional reaction. And that emotional reaction can seem way out of proportion to what's going on. And that's a good way to notice, oh, this might be PTSD. And I can, uh, I had an experience of that when, as a little kid, I had an experience um, with, that was where, where I was abused by someone in the age range, 13, 14, 15, that age range. Well, I was a middle school counselor, which was not a problem when I had one or two, maybe three kids in my office. But my superintendent and principal discovered that I had a teaching certificate, as well as my counseling credential. And so they put me in a classroom with 30 
13, 14, 15-year-olds. And so there I am in front of and is supposed to be in charge of this massive number of uh, ungrateful <laughs> 13, 14, and 15-year-olds. And I would cry without stopping every night for, and, and this went for like a couple of months. And I'm going, this reaction is way out of proportion. I, and I didn't know that it was related to this incident in the past. And I said, but this is just not normal. This is out of, I mean, sure I'd be nervous because I don't know what the heck I'm doing, but it's way out of proportion to the situation. And so I went to a therapist to get some help with that and got some wonderful relief. And um, um, so I would say that sometimes when you get a past ghost that is indicative of something that has not been digested well in your, in your thought process, or perhaps maybe you have a current experience, like a sudden shock, a car accident, something like that, it's a good idea to talk to someone to process it and to get some help processing it. Because sometimes uh, you'll be able to do it on your own, but it takes a long time and you get a lot of mess in the meantime. Uh, it goes a little quicker if you get some help with it. So that's a kind of a, a thing that's a little beyond. Well, mindfulness helps a lot, but um, it needs some help too sometimes. Um, so I want to apply this thinking about this to the future. I'm going to move along here. Uh, when you're not burdened by and daydreaming about these things that belong to the future, then that person is not being lost in the future. Well, again, um, we're talking about using catch and release. When you find yourself um, nervous and going, what if, what if, what if, the what if ghosts, mm -hmm. then that same process can be used for that because that's often what you're catching is what if, what if this happens or what if that happens. Um, if you think about it, our thoughts about the future tend to be projections of our past experiences or their creations of our consciousness. We use knowledge and skill we have accumulated to plan something for the future or maybe to invent something or to imagine something. But the same creative force that lets us imagine an author, what an author or a painter is trying to portray or maybe uh, the same creative force that lets us compose a poem or write a federal grant, that same creative force in our consciousness uh, is the same one that creates what-if scenarios. So if you're creative, you're likely to be able to create really well, and it can have a double-edged sword. It can be great for creativity, but it can also, you might have a tendency to be one who can also create the what-if scenarios and, and deal with some anxiety. But uh, the daydreaming or planning the future is uh, interesting, um, getting lost in that. Last winter, I spent a couple of months absorbed in the planning of our trip to Hawaii. And uh, I spent hours searching the VRBO and the Airbnb sites and options to find just the right place. I was aware I was doing it, and I was enjoying it to a point, but then I got kind of lost in it, and I was, would get confused and frustrated and um, just trying to project and anticipate all these different scenarios and plotting all these travel options. And 
so I, I did all this anticipating, um, and I, but I really kind of got lost in that process. I was, I was not always enjoying that. And then as it turns out, I get there, I never anticipated breaking my collarbone. <laughs> I did not even anticipate taking my health card with me. I got there without my Medicare card. So, you know, a big hassle trying to get my uh, medical coverage from the hospital there. And then while I was there, of course, I, and I break the collarbone, I end up in the ER. I'm in this little ER treatment room, and I'm going, what if, what if? What if I have to have surgery? What, you know, you know, thinking, oh gosh, how badly is this broken? Am I going to be in overnight? And yada, yada. And my head is just going, yun, 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 yun. So back to just breathing. I'm not going to die from this. This is not life-threatening. And once I could calm myself down and breathe, um, I could step out of the contact with that experience and observe myself and smile and then decide how I was going to engage this. And I thought, where am I going to put my intention? I'm in this little tiny room. I mean, Rowan and I, Rowan's in there, but... You know, you know, what can we put our attention to? And there's nothing even to look at on the walls. And I thought, gratitudes. So I started paying attention. I, I purposely and intentionally turned my attention to gratitudes, paying attention to, um, and there's always gratitudes, always. So that's what I re-engaged with. So this sutra is not saying never, entertain the past, never plan or enjoy anticipating the future. It's inviting me to be grounded in my breathing and bring the past or the future into the present with intention. So Thich Nhat Hanh says, our past is, our past is present now and our future comes from how we think about and act in the present. If we do not stand firmly in the present moment, we may feel ungrounded when we look at the future or when the past manifests. That grounding begins with the ability to return your attention to your breathing. Buddhism teaches a way of breathing which gives us the capacity of making mind and body one in order to be face-to-face -face with life. That is why every meditator begins in practicing the sutra on the full awareness of breathing, which we have not covered yet. That one probably should have been the first one we did, but we did cover that a few years ago, I think. <coughs> so, I have talked about and how I practice with catch and release and um, what I do with this. And then, I, then the last thing I wanted to look at, which probably is the first, is what the heck am I doing this for? What, what are, so these are sp specific skills I can use. But what do they promote? What do they give me by doing these skills? So what it does is looking deeply at life as it is in the very here and now, the practitioner dwells in stability and freedom. And so, quote unquote, the Blessed One recited this gata. In observing life deeply, it is possible to see clearly all that is. And so what is this being face-to-face -face with life? What does it mean to see clearly all that is? What are we supposed to see when we can see, when we have this clear space? 
And here's what I came up with from the study. When space is created between thoughts and reactions, it is possible to reduce the noise and burdens that chatter in the mind, and in that silence lies the reality that we live in our body and in our daily life, and at the same time that we are a tiny but significant player in all of creation and all that is. So we live in this body and we are interdependent without a separate self. So I guess that part is hard for me to, to describe because when I got this space from practicing this, then I could sit with more space. I've already talked about space, but what I got was more an, a huge awareness of the vastness of even though as tiny and significant as, as I am in the greater picture of things, that, um, that each of us is a significant part. And we are, and here's that, we're one with everything, which sounds like a real cliche, but um, that is what I got a little, little deeper awareness of. And that everything is in constant change, and our stability and freedom comes from our awareness of our place, both in this body and in our selfless nature of being in everything and everywhere at the same time. So I just recommend the book, Our Appointment with Life, uh, who has the commentary on this. And um, what Thich Nhat Hanh says is that all we have to be responsible for is the present moment. To care for the present moment is to care for the future of ourselves and the universe. So um, this is why we strive for a daily concentrated practice, even if it's only five minutes at a time, to build that capacity. Because we will face all these struggles and heartbreaks and fears and betrayals and love and craving. So we want to cultivate a high degree of awareness and the ability to move quickly into this quiet observing space. Uh, the world needs this awareness and understanding to permeate the vast body that each of us contributes. And so then that phrase, we must be diligent today to wait until tomorrow is too late. Death comes unexpectedly. How can we bargain with it? Um, so the necessity of, I mean, and Thich Nhat Hanh talked with some urgency um, when I was at one or two of his retreats about the urgency of practicing and how the world needs us to do this. And it just came a little more clear that that's what that, that was true 2,000 years ago and it's true still today.